If you haven't done so, please open to Matthew 5 and read along with me. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith salt, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For, ver- for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill be, shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say unto his brother, shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee. Leave thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest any time, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing.
Ye have heard it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Again, ye have heard it said, Again, ye have heard it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is God's footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by the head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard it, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at thy law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of, it, of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them that which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. You may be seated. Good morning. Our text this morning is Matthew 5. 19 and 20. I should be looking a little bit at 17, 18, 19, and 20. Get the whole context. But I'd like to start with something that came to my attention. This being the week of Thanksgiving, I found 
copy of this early, one of the earliest National Thanksgiving Day proclamations issued in the midst of our nation's founding conflict, Revolutionary War, by the Continental Congress as printed in the journals of Congress. And the Lord then followed this up with some, some thoughts that I think will, will help to illustrate uh, uh, the way in which we should uh, be a br- Brian in considering his word. <clears throat> so this is the text of this uh, proclamation. The committee appointed to prepare a recommendation to the several states to set apart a day of public thanksgiving brought in a report which was taken into consideration and agreed to as follows. For as much as it is the indispensable duty of all men to adore the superintending providence of Almighty God, to acknowledge with gratitude their obligation to him for benefits received, and to implore such farther blessings as they stand in need of, and it having pleased him in his abundant mercy not only to continue to us the innumerable bounties of his common providence, but also smile upon us in the prosecution of a just and necessary war for the defense and establishment of our unalienable rights and liberties, particularly in that he has been pleased in so great a measure to prosper the means used for the support of our troops and to crown our arms with most signal success. It is therefore recommended to the legislative or executive powers of these United States to set apart Thursday, the 18th day of December next, for solemn thanksgiving and praise, that with one heart and one voice the good people may express the grateful feelings of their hearts and consecrate themselves to the service of their divine benefactor, and that together with their sincere acknowledgments and offerings they may join the penitent confession of their manifold sins, whereby they had forfeited every favor, and their humble and earnest supplication that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ to mercifully to forgive and blot them out of remembrance that it may please him graciously to afford his blessings on the governments of these states respectively and prosper the public counsel of the whole to inspire our commanders both by land and sea and all under them that with wisdom and fortitude which may render them fit instruments under the providence of Almighty God to secure for these United States the greatest greatest of all blessings, independence and peace that it may please him to prosper the trade and manufactures of the people and the labor of the husbandmen and that our land may yield its increase to take schools and seminaries of education so necessary for cultivating the principles of true liberty, virtue, and piety under his nurturing hand, and to prosper the means of religion for the promotion and enlargement of that kingdom which consisteth in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And it is further recommended that servile labor and such recreation as, though at other times innocent, may be unbecoming the purpose of this appointment, be omitted on so solemn an occasion, Saturday, November 1st, 1777. Not something we'll be used to hearing these days. I hope we all gave thanks for more than turkey and dressing this past Thursday. I hope we all gave thanks for forgiveness of sins on the merits of Jesus Christ. And I hope we all prayed for the advancement of his kingdom of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit in our souls, in the souls of our families and the members of this assembly whom God has joined together for his purpose, and in the souls of those whose lives we touch 
and will touch as we give ourselves to the Lord to fulfill his purpose till all is fulfilled. Wasn't that an amazing proclamation? Quite a different prevailing worldview back then. But in 1947, the Supreme Court of the United States lifted a single phrase out of a single sentence from a letter written by Thomas Jefferson and used it to reinterpret the First Amendment to mean the opposite of what had been understood and practiced for 160 years. The First Amendment, as originally intended and practiced, put restrictions only on the government, not the people. The Warren Court in 1947 reinterpreted the First Amendment to put the restrictions on the religious practice of the people. From that point, there has been a steady erosion of religious liberty in the government arena and in the public square. Follow along. This might be uh, an unexpected piece of uh, information, but there's a purpose in it. Following is an excerpt from the letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote on January 1st, 1802, to the Danbury Baptist Association in response to concerns they had expressed in writing about religious freedom. Wrote Jefferson, quote, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion, prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state, unquote. To us, the 1947 decision may seem to be an example of a single sentence being twisted to mean something entirely different than what the source intended, but others may not see it that way. Take note that an analysis of the words, wall of separation between church and state, as an isolated phrase, does not make clear several things. Whether a wall keeps the church out of the state's business, or a wall keeps the state out of the church's business, or whether there is a physical wall between a church's chambers and a state body's chambers in the same building, and so on. That cannot be ascertained by just analyzing the phrase. We need additional context. The rest of Jefferson's letter might be helpful. Maybe the initial letter from the Danbury Baptist Association as well. To see how he... I'm sorry, perhaps other writings from Jefferson, preferably some examples as well from his life to see how he lived out the principle in question. Actually, all of that is available, but one quote and some examples from Jefferson's life will suffice to make the point of this story. Several years after the Thanksgiving proclamation of 1777 that I read earlier, Jefferson wrote the following comments in his notes on the state of Virginia. Quote, Religion is well supported, of various kinds indeed, but all good enough, all sufficient to preserve peace and order, or if a sect arises whose tenets would subvert morals, good sense has fair play and reasons and laughs it out of doors without suffering the state to be troubled with it. Unquote. He continues, speaking of harmony through tolerance within a couple of the states, quote, they have made the happy discovery that the way to silence religious disputes is to take no notice of them, unquote. Now, we may not agree with his sentiments, and this is not read as if it's in line with the word of God, 
But the quote seems to indicate that Jefferson was an advocate of government staying out of religious affairs and letting the marketplace of ideas take care of picking winners and losers. But most helpful in discerning the intent of the phrase separation of church and state are several well-documented actions that Jefferson took. Just a few days after writing that letter to the Danbury Association, Jefferson attended church, the church that met regularly for worship, in the chambers of the U.S. House of Representatives, inside the Capitol building. And regular worship services continued there until after the Civil War. In fact, Jefferson voted for the use of the Capitol building as a church building. He also urged local governments to make land available specifically for Christian purposes, proposed that the great seal of the United States depict a story from the Bible and include the word God in its motto, and several similar actions. The point to be made here is not whether Jefferson is a Christian, was a Christian, though his many quotes and writings do leave that in serious doubt. Nor has this information been given to make a religious or political point though I'm sure one could be made. But rather the point is that it often takes more than word analysis to ascertain the meaning of the written word. Other writings from the same source can shine additional light and bring greater clarity. And most illuminating are examples of how a principle or truth is walked out in the course of life. In essence, this would be part of what is held in high esteem in Acts when speaking of the Bereans. When they looked into the scriptures to find out, to to verify the message. So I point out then that other writings, but also and especially examples from lives are most helpful. In our text for today, in Matthew 5, The founding father of the church, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, is speaking to his disciples as well as the gathered multitude, and he speaks to us today. If we were to consider what Jesus says here in this passage, apart from what else he said and did from other passages, could we possibly open ourselves up to error? We would have to say, yes, it is possible. But it is more than a possibility in this case because this text has been interpreted multiple ways and has sometimes been a source of controversy. I hope the show today, confirmed by the prophets and the words and deeds of Jesus and the apostles, at the heart of verses 17 through 20 in Matthew 5, is God's sovereign work of salvation in our hearts by faith, and that the outworking of our faith continues upon the same basis, faith working through love as we walk in the Spirit. From the beginning, God announced through the prophets that he would send his chosen servant, the Messiah, to save his people from their sins by taking them upon himself. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But throughout many of these prophecies, it was foretold not only that the perfect righteousness of the suffering servant would justify many, but also that his righteousness would be granted to his people and to the Gentile nations. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. 
Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the peoples, as a light to the Gentiles. Yet when this very passage is quoted in Matthew chapter 12, the emphasis is not on the righteousness at that time, but on the calm and quiet nature of the Lord's servant as he avoided unnecessary popularity with the crowds because it stirred up Jewish leaders before the appointed time of the, of the cross. Then in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, when Jesus was reading from Isaiah 61 in the Nazareth synagogue, beginning with verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He actually stopped in mid-sentence, closed the book, and sat down, and then said, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This demonstrates how self-aware Jesus was about the partial fulfillment of that prophecy at that very time, and that the other parts of it were for later. Turn to Isaiah 61, please. And let's look at the rest of it, this prophecy. Not only at the end-time prophecy that Jesus stopped short of, but also, continuing on, the bold foretelling of an everlasting covenant and righteousness to be granted to all nations. Words that went unspoken at that time in Nazareth. Picking up at verse 2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And skip down to verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their worth in work in truth, and I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the, that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. 
My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the, Lord, as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. I hope these prophecies are a blessing to you, just contemplating all that the Lord intended to accomplish. The prophets also foretold that the Lord would honor the law as part of his setting forth and rejoicing in his righteousness. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 21. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. The Lord always announced what he was going to do and made it possible to know what was taking place through the fulfillments, though the fulfillments were not recognized by the nation of Israel as a whole because of their hard hearts. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And Isaiah 43, verse 19. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? The Lord wants us to know of these things. He wanted the people of that day to look forward to what he was doing. Most especially, the Lord announced through the prophet Jeremiah that he was going to make a new covenant. In chapter 31, beginning with verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Though given in incomplete and veiled language, all these prophecies together point ahead to one all-encompassing fulfillment in Christ. I want to read again the verses in our text in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we consider how these verses relate to one another, we can see that verse 19, which begins with, whoever therefore, is considered true, considered to be true because of verses 17 and 18. 
also, verse 19, which concerns how those in the kingdom of heaven are to walk, depends on verse 20, which speaks of righteousness that is required in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus boldly declared that he came not to destroy, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. However, as his pattern had been at other times, he did not explain how he was going to fulfill the law because it was not yet the time of fulfillment. Nor did he explain in detail how or what it meant to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. But after his resurrection, Jesus opened up the understanding of the disciples. This is recorded in Luke 24, beginning with verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. After Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit began to reveal to the apostles further insight into what God had accomplished through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And this further insight is necessary for understanding the Matthew 5, 17-20 text. Through their inspired writings, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, we understand that all of the prophecies concerning salvation, righteousness, and the new covenant were fulfilled in Christ. All the righteous requirements of God's just and holy law were satisfied, paid in full by Christ on the cross. Through our union with him in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we receive all the spiritual blessings that God, that God has determined to lavish on his adopted children who have believed in his promise. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In Romans 6, verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. There are many aspects to our new covenant relationship with Christ. We could think of them as facets of a diamond in that they're all interrelated all within our union with Christ. But the scriptures often speak of them distinctly. So, as I touch on a few of these, let's also just rejoice in heart together in what God has accomplished. As we read earlier in Jeremiah 31, God has put his law in our minds and written on our hearts. Another scripture is Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8. This was quoted concerning Jesus in Hebrews 10. But may it also be true of us. 
Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. In Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Scriptures also speak of the new creation. In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. He said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We need to relate that to verse 20 in our Matthew 5 text. Going on in verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We must be born again by the Spirit of God to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. As we read earlier, we're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then there's the righteousness of Christ given to us by faith. Philippians 3, verse 9. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Galatians 6, verse Sorry, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And I consider, uh, certainly it's a large body of text in in Galatians, uh, but Paul develops this much, and it's founded upon the faith and the promise of God. And he makes a a distinction between being of the promise, the free woman, or the bond woman. In Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ by faith, based on the promise, believing his promise. And then obedience, according to the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, and the next few verses, clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. We also live by the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. Galatians 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, 
God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. In John 6, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Galatians 5.25, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Walking in the Spirit fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. Romans 8.4 That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christ has fulfilled the law, but we in our lives here, in Christ, realize that same fulfillment as we walk in the Spirit. Because love fulfills the law. There are many scriptures that refer to this. Romans 13.8 Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment. All summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is confirmed in James 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Galatians 5.13 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We have indeed been called to liberty. But virtually every time that this is mentioned in Scripture, you have the admonition to not use, in other words, abuse that liberty as an opportunity for our flesh. We're to be walking in the Spirit, and through love, serving one another. This is what fulfills the law in the new covenant. And now as we look at Matthew 5, verse 20, it can be understood as speaking of the new covenant relationship with Christ. We must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. As a new creation in Christ, our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees who trusted in their performance of the law. Because Christ has given us his righteousness. Philippians 3 verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Then reading verse 19 again. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. How then is this verse to be understood? What are the commandments he is referring to? 
But we understand that the kingdom of heaven can be entered only through salvation by grace, through faith in Christ. Then we can see that as a new creation in Christ, who did indeed fulfill the law, as he said, our obedience is according to that new covenant. God has given us his Holy Spirit, and our obedience is according to the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Or in the other words of scripture, faith working through love as we walk in the spirit. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end or culmination of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then Romans 8.3 and 4 For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. These truths are precious, but they become even more precious as understanding increases. Recall how the example of Thomas Jefferson's actions shed much light on his statements. Wouldn't it be helpful if there were examples of these truths in the life of Jesus and the apostles? God has provided several examples in the Gospels, but one in particular stands out to me as very helpful. Please turn to Matthew 12. Passages in the first eight verses of Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, funny, what were the Pharisees doing in the grain field, by the way? And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But Jesus said to them, Have you not read? Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus' answer to them, is to give them an example. And this is an example to us. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat? Jesus made a point of, of pointing that out. It was not lawful for him to eat that, nor for those who were with him, but only the priests. So is Jesus fine with the breaking of the law? It would appear so. If we are endeavoring to come in line with the law, our performance of the law, like the Pharisees, the scribes. But Jesus was not walking that way. And he was teaching his disciples not to walk that way. The basis is the spirit of the law, the new covenant, walking in the spirit. Jesus is our example. David, in fact, 
who was a man of promise. We know the sins that he committed, but he was a true son of Abraham, a man after God's own heart. Was he not, through love, serving one another? He had responsibility over men. He was taking care of them. According to Jesus, in using this example, while pointing out specifically to the Pharisees, don't you see that they broke the law, did what was not lawful? But in fact, David, in this example, and Jesus' point is his disciples in the grain field, was not disobeying the law the spirit of the law. And he was teaching them to walk that way. Verse 5, Jesus gives another example. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? I'm sure that one hurt a little bit. And yet I say to you that in this place there was one greater than the temple. Romans 14, 18 says, For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Perhaps not all men. But the Lord wants us to learn from him what really matters. He wants to write his law in our heart and to continue, to continue in that. As James says, continue looking in the perfect law of liberty, growing in that, having our minds renewed, and more and more understanding the heart of the law. Would this not have been how Enoch walked? Or Job? When it says that Job was blameless according to the law, was he perfect? I, I think scripture would say otherwise. There was only one by that description. So in what way was he blameless? Would this not mean that as a man of faith and promise, even back then, that he walked in the spirit of the law toward God? Jesus continues on in verse 7, But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. James 2, verse 12 and 13 says, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of all. Now, that was one example from the life of Jesus that was very helpful to me, and I trust it will be to you. Another example in the life of the apostles, I believe, is very helpful and instructive. In Acts 15, it's especially helpful because of the nature of this controversy in the church. Now, this particular subject was concerning circumcision. 
However, we find that it was more than that. The text tells us. We'll begin to read in verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So you see, it was more than just circumcision. Verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up. Apparently, Peter waited until there had been opportunity for many to voice their opinions and concerns. But he rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us. His first point is, this is not our choice, this is God's. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Remember his sermon in Acts, early chapters of Acts, spoke of the the Holy Spirit. This is a promise to all that would believe. And so, verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things, known to God from eternity for all his works. Note here that James acknowledges that what Peter has just said, what God had done in their midst, in their lifetime, but they looked to the scriptures, the prophets, for confirmation. Is this what God is doing? Because if this is what God is doing, he will have said so. Remember the scriptures earlier, that God speaks before he does things. 
Why would he do that? Does he have to do that? No. It could have done otherwise. But he wants us to know. And he wants us also, does he not, to be able to look back and find how else are we to discern, to test, and hold fast to that which is good? We go to the word and we find what he has prophesied and see what we observe now in light of that. They must agree. Picking up in verse 19. Therefore, James is still speaking. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Now, I don't know about you. Some of you might have had no trouble with this at all. But I've had trouble with this for years, just not really seeing this very clearly. On the surface, what it seemed to me is, he's just, James just said that we should not trouble the Gentiles, that they are saved by God purifying their hearts through faith in Christ apart from the law. And then some of the things he says that they're going to write to them and say they need to, you know, live underneath this have to do with things of the law. It goes on in verse 21. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 and then verse 8 and 9. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Verse 8. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. In Romans 14, verses 13 through 19, Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. This is the spirit of the law. This is new covenant relationship with Christ and with one another. Union with Christ together. We are to walk in love with one another. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. So what we have here is an example where James, not rather than James the 
kind of on the law side, wanting to hang on to a few things to apply. No. He is teaching, in a sense, making disciples through this whole story here. Because Moses had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city. There are Jewish brethren there who have had a lifetime of training and are very sensitive to this issue. And so just as according to the spirit of of those scriptures I just read, he's he's teaching them to prefer them in love by accepting these things, not on the basis of law, not coming under the law, except for the law of Christ. And of course, there are some things there. The sexual immorality, that's clear. As Jesus said concerning divorce, from the beginning, it was not so. So that is across the board, and you see that repeated throughout Paul's letters, especially to the many churches. But you don't find those other things other than in the context of taking care with one another, not to put a stumbling block in a brother or sister's way. So, a really beautiful example of, of the church, the leaders in Jerusalem, caring for brethren that they had not even seen, but recognizing that there was going to be significant tension and, and possibly some brothers or sisters stumbling over this. Note, too, that even though there was not an explanation here in this text, nor in the letter that they sent, or later in the chapter, you can read that, it said virtually the same thing. But they sent Judas and Silas, who spoke at length to them. So no doubt they, were, they had much to say on this issue as far as the purpose behind it. So, they didn't bring the Gentiles under the law, but rather taught them to obey the spirit of the law by walking in love. Again, Romans 8, 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. They did indeed fulfill the law. So, we're taught to follow the pattern, though not the specifics of this example. Galatians 6, verse 15 and 16. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. I want to read those again. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. As many as walk according to this rule. What rule? What rule is he referring to? Because what he's just said is, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Just wording-wise, does that sound like a rule? No. Not a rule in the sense that we might think, you know, there's a command, clearly worded, do this, don't do that. But it's pointing to 
the basis of our life in Christ. A new creation. That's what matters. There may be some concern about We can imagine, well, doesn't this, are there no boundaries? <laughs> you know, Through love, serve one another. Love fulfills the law. This is the way of Christ. This is how he lived. This is how he taught his disciples to live. We have liberty in Christ but we are to so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now, we're not, (laughs) our text is not the remaining of chapter 5, but consider what's there. When Jesus begins to talk about murder, adultery, is it easier or more difficult Actually, it's not a matter of casting off restraint. This is not the way of Christ. But we cannot ever be justified by performance to the law. But if we let him write upon our minds and upon our hearts, and we walk in the Spirit as he leads us, not only obeying him as he would lead us, but having an attitude and an understanding that this is his way. The scriptures say that this is what pleases God. And this is what fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. We, we're on the one hand told that we cannot, we cannot fulfill the requirements of the law. As delivered, it brings forth death, but also leads us to Christ. Once we've been led to Christ, the law which was a tutor to bring us to Christ, we are no longer under the law. Galatians says that clearly. But that's not then no restraint. In fact, we are constrained by the love of Christ even in a greater measure as we walk in the Spirit. And this is what is a glory to Christ. The law brings glory to Christ is that scripture, uh, the uh, prophecy talking about the, the law being exalted. It's exalted as, as it is applied to, for example, the Jewish leaders who refused him. They were cut off. The law won. But the righteous requirements of the law can be fulfilled as we walk with Christ. In love. So then, maybe one remaining question. What is the purpose and place of the law in the life of the, of the believer? If it is not to be lived under as it was. The law is part of the scriptures for starters. It is God's word and it is profitable. 2 Timothy 3.14 But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, 
that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. How is it that the Lord writes his laws or, on, on our hearts and our minds? As we read and study his perfect word, the law remains holy and just and good. Paul makes this clear in Romans. It's that we have died to the law. Romans 7, we have died to the law that we might be joined to Christ. So our relationship to the law has changed and is defined by our union with Christ. The law has no hold on us. We are dead to the law. The love of Christ constrains us. 1 Peter 2, verse 16. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. James 2, verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Galatians 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Galatians 6, 15 and 16. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Philippians 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So then, just glancing back again at verse 19 in particular, in chapter 5. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So consider as you read that the, the relationship we have with Christ union with him and with one another. So when it speaks of breaking one of the least of these commandments, the word break has probably the most, the primary meaning is to loose. It can be translated even destroy. Jesus mentioned that, destroy this temple. But 
I think the, considering the word loose is actually helpful. To, to loose or relax. To be lax. Living in the liberty of Christ does not mean we're not to use that liberty for ourselves. It does not mean we, we, be, we live sloppily. But neither do we wear phylacteries. We're to have that written in our hearts at all times. And so, one who would be lax, be sloppy regarding these commands. The law does tell us what the Lord desires. We learn from reading the word what he desires and how we're to live. We should be careful that we do not put a stumbling block in somebody else's way. Essentially, we could, even by our lives, even without a word, we could teach others do what ought not to be. Rather, let us be encouraged to walk with him in liberty and to teach others to do the same, just like Jesus taught his disciples and is desiring to teach us now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the purity of it and what you intend to accomplish, to continue to accomplish as we are before you, to learn from you, walk in your ways, display the glories of your grace, to shine as lights in the world. You have saved us. You've put the desire in our hearts to draw ever closer to you, to delight more and more each day in your will. We pray that you would do that among us. Individually, that we would be walk in sincerity and truth. And that with one another, we would speak the truth in love. To consider others more important than ourselves. To look out, not just for our own interests, but for the interests of others. To truly then, to walk as you walked, humbly before you and for one another, and finding the grace and truth in Christ, the strength of your spirit, enabling us to walk with a perfect heart before you. Indeed, the very end of this chapter 5 has those words, be perfect. May we see through this text and through the testimony of your word and the examples you have given us in your word, what that means. In your precious name, amen.